Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. To listen to economic nationalists, national conservatives, and certain politicians, you would believe that we're in a period of mass deindustrialization. Employment in American manufacturing has been declining since the early 1980s, and manufacturing share of the economy has been declining since 1970. These trends, they argue, pose not just social and economic challenges to the country, but national security challenges as well. The response from some political leaders in Washington is arguments for increased economic protectionism, tariffs, and subsidies to shore up the American manufacturing sector and support the people who work in it. But is deindustrialization really happening? Today, I speak with Scott Linsicum, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Cato Institute, about his new paper, Manufactured Crisis, Deindustrialization, Free Markets, and National Security. In it, Linsicum argues that the data paint a picture of the American economy and manufacturing base that is strong and resilient, even as it and the larger economy undergo disruptions, the consequences of which are in most cases beneficial, and in other cases, better addressed by policy choices other than protectionism. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Scott Lincecum is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, where he writes on international and domestic economic issues, including international trade, subsidies in industrial policy, manufacturing and global supply chains, and economic dynamism. He also writes the newsletter Capitalism for the Dispatch. His new paper is Manufactured Crisis, Deindustrialization, Free Markets, and National Security, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Scott Lincecum, Welcome back to Acton Line. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be back. So let's discuss what you identify as the myth um, before we get to, uh, I guess, what reality is. Yeah. What is the argument that is put forward that we have seen uh, mass deindustrialization over the course of time and right. that this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed, not just economically, but politically? Right. So um, the narrative that uh, has emerged in the last few years, um, mainly with respect to the U.S.-China relationship, but now also with respect to COVID-19, is that decades of uh, free markets and a lack of government support have caused uh, rampant deindustrialization, um, thus leaving the country utterly unprepared to handle um, national emergencies, whether it be a war or a pandemic, um, because we cannot, um, we lack the industrial capacity to make the stuff we need for those in those times of emergency. So in your research, what did you find is the reality of that of the situation? 
Yeah. And so there's a there's a nugget of truth in the kind of deindustrialization thesis. And that is that there's really no doubt that certain manufacturing industries um, and, of course, certain factories, things that we see with our eyes, um, have have declined or or been closed in the last you know 20 to 30 years, whether it's due to globalization or changing consumer tastes or interstate competition, you know, the Sun Belt versus the Rust Belt, that kind of thing. Um, but where the argument really goes wrong, um, kind of on the just pure factual level, is that um, manufacturing output, so the things, in other words, the gauge, the broadest gauge of the nation's industrial capacity um, is up over time um, in over, the, say, the last 20, 30 years. Um, not only that, the United States remains really a global manufacturing powerhouse, um, second in the world in terms of value added, um, really the best in the world uh, among major manufacturing nations, um, in terms of worker productivity, in terms of the, the amount of stuff each American manufacturing worker makes. Um, we are a top recipient of foreign direct investment in the manufacturing sector. Um, American manufacturers um, have increasingly spent on research and development and capital expenditures. Um, they also have steady and if not improving financial performance in terms of profits and incomes and all those types of things. Um, and at the broadest level, the only areas where you can really see a, a quote unquote decline of American manufacturing are in terms of employment. So jobs have gone down for sure, uh, either as a share of the workforce or total number of manufacturing jobs. And as manufacturing sectors share of GDP, um, gross domestic product, basically the, the manufacturing sector's share of the economy. Um, but, even, but both of those, as I, as I explained in the paper, really don't actually say much about the state of manufacturing. Because first, every developed country, whether it's Germany or Japan um, uh, or others, has been losing manufacturing jobs over the last 30 plus years. And in fact, industrialized, manufacturing-centric nations, nations with trade surpluses, nations with um, very aggressive industrial policies, like, again, Germany, have actually lost more jobs um, over the past 40 years um, than has the United States. Um, and what we see in the economics literature is that really the declining manufacturing jobs are, are just a standard story of economic development. Every country, give or take, um, gains manufacturing jobs in the in the early stages of development and loses agricultural jobs. And then as it, the country gets richer, um, it starts to once again lose manufacturing jobs and gain jobs in the services sector. It's happened in the United States. Again, it's happened basically everywhere. Um, so then moving on to GDP, it's really a similar story. What we see is that the uh, manufacturing sector declining share of GDP is really a story of the growth of the American services sector, not the decline of manufacturing. Uh, simply put, Americans devote more of our budgets as we get richer to services. Well, that, of course, fuels the growth of the services sector. And again, when you look across countries, you see this happening again everywhere. Even in developed countries, um, you see this same trend towards an increasing share um, of 
of your GDP of, of individual household budgets being spent on services. It's nothing really, again, to worry about. So, so that's kind of the broadest story of deindustrialization. Um, the only thing I'll add, I think it's also important, is that when you start to dig into the manufacturing data, you still, you still see strength where it counts. Um, U.S. durable goods production, for example. So this is, you know, tanks, planes, cars, trains, all that kind of stuff, um, is up. And it's up significantly. Even if you remove certain things like computers and electronics, which have some adjustment uh, issues, very wonky, nerdy stuff people don't care about, you still see a substantial increase in durable goods output over the last um, 30 years or so. You also see industries that we care most about in terms of national security, um, substantial gains there. I mentioned aerospace, uh, motor vehicles, that kind of thing, um, semiconductors and the rest. Then when you look at where the industries that are declining, you tend to see that these are, these are mainly low value, low wage, low productivity jobs, textiles, furniture, um, or uh, industries that are just dying because of technology and the rest. Um, te tobacco is for uh, a big industry that has declined a lot for obvious reasons. Um, another big one, paper products, right? We don't use as much paper. And this, again, is a story not of deindustrialization, but what we call dematerialization. As uh, the United States economy has gotten richer, we actually are consuming on kind of a sheer weight basis. We're actually consuming less materials. There's a great book all about this. So, again, these are these are. Uh, issues that you see with your eyes, a lost factory, but at the broader level, um, there's really no case for a major uh, deindustrialization crisis. Let's drill down on the jobs part of this to, yeah. to start with. So one of the things you mentioned is this evolution that uh, nations and economies go through that as they develop, they gain a lot of manufacturing jobs. And as they continue to develop, they start to lose those manufacturing jobs. I assume this is probably a cycle that nations have gone through over time, plenty of times as you go through the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution, that you accumulate all these jobs, you develop, and then you find more effective ways to do them. Yeah. Um, so as the point you're making that we continue to produce a lot of things, um, we'll save the dematerialization part of it for later. Mm -hmm. We do continue to produce a lot of things, but now we're doing it in different ways without people in the factories. Yeah. What role has technology played in creating the impression that we're deindustrializing because we look at the jobs lost in the sector right. and think, well, we must not be making things anymore? Right. I think a great example of this is in the U.S. steel industry. You know, steel is one of those things we think it's essential to national security. President Trump put a bunch of tariffs on steel because it was essential to national security. Um, but steel worker jobs have declined dramatically since the early 1980s. Now, why is that? Well, you mentioned it's actually mainly because of technology. So in, uh, I believe it's 1980, it took about 10 man hours, we call it, to produce one ton of steel. Today, that, that number is under two man hours. In other words, it takes five times fewer workers um, to make a ton of steel today, at least five times, than it, does, than it did in 1980. Well, that means you need fewer jobs, uh, unless you assume 
that steel output is just going to increase at the same exponential pace. So yes, if you were making five times as much steel, then maybe you could maintain that level of, of jobs. But of course, we don't do that. Uh, there's great economics literature that shows that you know people tend at, at, at a certain point, I mean, leaving aside the dematerialization stuff, at a certain point, there's only so many goods uh, and stuff that you can consume. And that, go, again, goes back to why um, uh, we devote more of our, as we get richer, more of our incomes to services. Because those are the things, you know, you can go get a haircut uh, once a month. That's a service. You, you can't go buy a dishwasher once a month. So that type of um, that dynamic is is at play as well, but but again, like you said, um, and and steel, I think again is this great example of the productivity gains that exist in the U.S. manufacturing sector, um, and that again happens everywhere. As as countries get richer, as manufacturers get richer, they invest in uh, machinery, equipment, and then things that you don't even think about. You know, software. So just you know, Microsoft Excel or whatever. These types of things um, will will decrease increase the number of workers you need, but while, of course, improving the workers' productivity, meaning their, their wages go up as well. So that's a big play. Now, look, I'm, I'm not going to deny, and I think it's really important not to deny, that globalization and trade play a role here. There is no doubt that in some sectors, the story is less about productivity uh, and more about trade. And I think the, the areas where that's really clear are, again, in textiles and apparel um, and in furniture. I think those are two really good areas. And But, but this is simply not a, a cause for crisis because, um, again, uh, the, we still have a lot of manufacturing uh, uh, production here. We just aren't making these kind of very low-wage, low-tech jobs. I mean, we still do have a textiles industry. It still makes tens of billions of dollars in output. But the fact is that, that these jobs are better done um, elsewhere and then allows us to focus on higher wage, uh, higher productivity manufacturing, again, and things like aerospace and, and uh, motor vehicles and the rest. So the process of the changes in nations and economies, like we talked about emerging from the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution that happen over time, yeah. these are protracted. I mean, they happen over decades. So right. you're talking really over generations of people who their factory closes, they lose the jobs that they had. Yeah. Um, I think we've seen from the early days of the Biden administration, I believe it was Pete Buttigieg discussing the uh, Keystone Pipeline that, well, the people who have been doing the construction work on that will just have to find other jobs or <laughs> yeah. in the journalism industry of the more callous version of the learn to code joke that people would make there. Um, if we're not addressing the political side of things or a, a political solution to the job loss in the way of supporting it through industrial policy that um, nationalists have argued for. Yeah. In your opinion, what would be a better political way to handle the situation that you have in places like Appalachia, where factories have closed, um, you have these towns that are one factory towns, essentially, yeah. you have people with one set of skills who now, because their industry in terms of the the jobs needed to produce it is shrinking. What do we do in the short term to address that kind of a problem that's created by forces both from globalization and trade, but also all of the other yeah. 
uh, items that you've discussed. Yeah. So I think it's important to start that, um, again, if you step back and look at um, the kind of arc of history and not just in the United States, you know, these these guys, um, a couple of economists about uh, five years ago, looked at 60 different countries representing uh, of like 80% of global, global GDP. So basically all of the big players. And they mapped this out over time. And it's, again, essentially all countries doing basically the same thing. And you can check this out in my paper. There are all these very neat interactive charts, um, which of course I love charts. Uh, the and, and so it's important to kind of understand that these seismic forces um, really can't be stopped Stopped via, say, protectionism um, or even really industrial policy. Uh, you know, you might be able to nibble around the edges a little bit. You might be able to slow things down here and there. But the fact is that these these trends are are coming for you, whether whether we like it or not. Um, there are, like you mentioned, however, some things we can do. I mean, I think the the in terms of labor adjustment, um, this is really an issue of of skills, and I think the learn to code thing is really uh, it's frustrating because on the one hand, um, it's it's very callous and very silly, um, but on the other hand, there is a nugget of truth buried in there, and that is that workers in industries that are no longer viable um, for whatever reason. It doesn't necessarily have to be because of globalization or productivity gains. It could, again, let's just use tobacco, for example, um, or we can use coal. You know, coal is losing out to natural gas, for example. So these industries, as they become less viable, well, you can't, you can't just kind of freeze workers in amber and, and say, okay, you are a coal miner. Your community is a coal mining community or textile manufacturing, whatever. So, and that, of course, that dynamism, that churn is good. We want an economy that that upgrades from, again, like coal to natural gas, from textiles manufacturing to automotive manufacturing, or of course, getting into services and all these great things and services. So, so the 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 key will be to encourage that adjustment. And how can government policy encourage adjustment? Well, I mean, I think there are there are a few things that we can do. Um, first is uh, there's obviously a role for education um, and a role for for uh, life uh, lifetime education, whether it's through community colleges or the rest. I'd, I'd note that there are some really great privately funded um, retraining programs. Uh, there's one in Kentucky funded by uh, Toyota, I believe, and it's actually grown dramatically. It's called the FAME program, F-A-M-E. Um, and it's about retraining workers in things like coal mining or low skills manufacturing to take on what they call gray collar manufacturing jobs. And these are jobs that aren't just standing in assembly line stamping a fender. They're, they're things that, that are, are required for modern manufacturing. So uh, understanding you know, software and, and, and advanced machinery and all that kind of stuff. So that we call it gray collar because it, it is definitely more advanced than kind of rote uh, manual uh, manufacturing labor. And, um, and so that's, that's education and skills training is, is a, clearly a place to start. But, but other than that, I mean, I think we also need to think about a lot of policies in place that actually inhibit this necessary adjustment. 
outside of, again, kind of protectionism stuff. Um, and for example, um, we have all sorts of laws that restrict, you know, in occupational licensing that prevent individuals from moving into uh, professions, uh, particularly in services that might be more stable and lucrative. And this includes blue collar professions, whether it's, you know, construction or security or whatever. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, that's one definite area to to start. Uh, another is in terms of housing. Um, that That's a tremendous barrier to physical mobility, which has declined in recent years because, you know, the hottest job markets in the country have very restrictive housing regulation. And that, of course, increased housing prices and makes it harder for somebody to move from, say, uh, an old mill town to uh, someplace better. And, and there are, you can go down the line. There are a host of these policies that just as our economy was getting increasingly disruptive in the 90s and 2000s, whether it's due to trade or technology or whatever, um, policymakers at the federal and state and local levels were actually making it harder for workers to adjust when, when disaster strikes. Um, and I think another area is simply to encourage more savings among individuals, whether it's through something like a tax-free savings account, which is very successful in a place like Canada, um, to allow individuals to have, you know, a bit of a safety net, a personal safety net when, you know, disaster strikes. Let's turn our attention to the pandemic. Um, what do you make of the argument that one of the things we learned during the pandemic is that some of the things that we would need in emergencies we weren't making here. And as the pandemic spread around the globe and disrupted supply chains, it made it increasingly difficult for us to access it in the way that we normally would, setting aside the economics arguments we could make about the signs I see on the shelves at Target that say there's you know too much demand for this product and yeah. answering the, you know, the economist answer to that is no, your price was too low. Um, what do we make particularly of things like PPE yeah. and drugs and right. other things that we clearly need in a crisis circumstance like this. We don't manufacture here as much anymore, and it's more difficult in an emergency to get from the normal places we'd source them from. Uh, is there merit to that argument? And if there is or if there isn't, what, what do we do in recognition of what we've learned yeah. from the experience of the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of merit. Um, and I'll, it's, it's, as always, it's a bit complicated. But, you know, it's first important to note that we, we have a really large and diverse medical goods industry in the United States, whether it is for ventilators or pharmaceuticals or N95 masks and cleaning supplies. All of these kind of COVID-19 goods, um, with, with, a, with few exceptions, we actually make here. The, the problem was demand. You mentioned demand, and I, I, it, I, it's just really important for everybody to understand just how insane demand got for these, uh, for these goods in March and April. And it is undeniable that, you know, the shelves emptied out, the supply chains were, were, were stressed, um, both globally and domestically. Um, and, and that creates some panic and that, of course, builds and, and creates shortages and, and the rest. It's also undeniable that um, openness to trade and investment can actually import external shocks. So if there's a pandemic abroad and that 
cripples your supply chain and you're relying on imports and that can hurt you even if you're not struggling. Okay, so those are your kind of nuggets of, of truth here. Um, but, but the reality again, and we've seen this over the last year, um, is, is first, um, the, the United States International Trade Commission actually had this big report out in December on the COVID supply chains. And what we saw is a few things. First, I already mentioned one, is that we actually did have a lot of domestic production. Um, and um, we had we do import stuff too. Um, so it's important to kind of distinguish between, okay, uh, substantial domestic production in, in these certain goods. Uh, I, I mentioned them, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, N95s, cleaning supplies. Um, then there's we rely on imports. We have some domestic production, but we also rely on imports for, for other stuff, particularly really low-cost PPE, surgical masks, uh, those paper medical gowns, you see. So that mainly comes from overseas, um, China and a bunch of other places. Malaysia, we rely on for rubber gloves. So the ITC examined what happened in the wake of COVID-19 when demand went nuts. And it turns out that the markets worked pretty well. Um, what you saw is um, tremendous increases in investment and production in domestic manufacturers. And this is really a testament to our existing industrial capacities. So we ramped up production of N95s. We ramped up production of certain pharmaceuticals. We increased uh, N95 masks. We did a lot of, um, and, and even had new PPE come online. Um, even the cheaper stuff came online. Um, we also saw a lot of new investment. One of my favorite examples is that Etsy, the crafts online retailer, um, sold tens of millions of masks over, um, you know, in 2020. And that's, you know, people realizing, hey, there's a market for this. I have skills. I'm, I'm going to make masks. Um, textile manufacturers, automotive producers, they retooled their production lines to make these types of things. So that's all good. Meanwhile, um, foreign and international supply chains also adapted. We started importing a lot more of these products. Now, and, and so again, you know, the ITC's uh, conclusions with everything except rubber gloves, rubber gloves is a very unique um, product doing to, owing to a lack of raw materials, not just natural rubber, but the, uh, the artificial rubber, There's it, that's a very difficult process. And so rubber gloves is, is, I think, the exception. But for everything else, the ITC said, look, there were some, some, uh, some problems in March and April, but for, for most things, um, the supply chains, domestic and foreign, worked out pretty well. Um, there's still some stress with respect to uh, some PPE. Um, demand for N95s is apparently infinite, so uh, you're never going to be able to meet it. But overall, the system worked pretty, pretty well. Um, and that, I think, is really a testament to uh, not just industrial capacity, but kind of the ingenuity of uh, American uh, producers and of markets, capital markets seeing the opportunity for investment. And, and so, you know, 
that really, I think, belies the idea that we need to reshore all of our domestic production. Um, in fact, what we see, and especially because the United States has, I think, struggled more with the pandemic than a lot of other manufacturing nations, um, we actually see how reshoring everything could create its own problems. Because if we are uh, have you know we make everything here we don't rely on on global supply chains and, and trade and diverse supply diversity then if the pandemic hits here in the United States and that shuts down our manufacturers then we're actually in a worse position um, because we have our own domestic shocks and the economics literature basically says this that reshoring supply chains doesn't make you any more resilient or secure because you become more susceptible to and at more at risk for a domestic shock um, while potentially being less at risk for an external, a foreign shock. So the, the best thing we can do is to maintain diversity of supply, foreign and domestic, maintain flexibility um, in our capital markets, in our manufacturing sector, um, and, and really try, I think, not to um, just start subsidizing and protecting certain sectors, um, kind of fighting the last war in advance of the next one. Um, and in that regard, I think that's the other thing Thing that it's good to note. It's that so we did, the government did um, subsidize early on in the pandemic a bunch of production and particularly in ventilators. Um, remember, we thought ventilators were the big thing. So President Trump decided he was going to be, and this is his quote, the king of ventilators. And we used the Defense Production Act to, to essentially force some manufacturers, just uh, like GE and I think Ford. Anyway, several manufacturers had to. Uh, they were they were going to make ventilators. Well, a few months later, our doctors realized actually ventilators uh, aren't essential. In fact, they might do more harm than good. But our manufacturers are cranking out ventilators. And now we have our stockpiles are overflowing with ventilators. We're donating ventilators overseas. Um, something similar has happened with, with certain PPE. Uh, Sherrod Brown, a senator from Ohio, just uh, sent a letter to President Biden complaining about a glut of PPE in Ohio, there you have too many manufacturers, and and so that that raises some, I think, some some a cautionary tales of of trying to subsidize production um, because you can you can create all sorts of distortions, and then you know new interest groups that want to maintain that production in non-pandemic times, and and that I think creates a lot of problems. When I think the best thing again is is maintaining flexibility. And to the extent there is oversupply, taking advantage of that through things like stockpiles, right? Um, you know, the government has strategic stockpiles, uh, private companies and hospitals have inventories. To the extent that those can be bolstered a bit, that's, that's all good, but it doesn't uh, require massive new subsidies or protectionism or trying to re rewire global supply chains. Let's use pharmaceuticals as a way to segue into issues concerning China. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've heard regularly is that perhaps upwards of 90% of pharmaceuticals that we use and consume in this country are manufactured in China. Right. So on one hand, you have the uh, risks associated with the pandemic and supply chains that we've just discussed, but also you have concerns about 
China's nature as a nation state and as a global actor, that if they're the ones supplying our pharmaceuticals and it looks like we're moving into a more adversarial relationship with China, that that puts us at risk in a couple of ways. One, because they could just all of a sudden decide to cut off supply. They could stop shipping as much to us. They could stop selling as much to us. Uh, But also that you've seen in the implementation of China's coronavirus vaccine that it looks to be less effective, less of a quality vaccine than the ones that we've seen. So can we even really trust Chinese manufacturing in that way? Um, What can you tell us about the that stat that is tossed around of 90 percent of pharmaceuticals being manufactured in China? And then how should we think about China going forward, given the way things have evolved over the last five years or so? Yeah. So um, the stat is bogus. Um, it it was, uh, so there was a great piece in Reason Magazine um, back in, I think, April of 2020 or so, that the, the author, uh, Eric Bohm, tried to find the source of this stat, that 90% of all of our, it's 90% of all of our generic drugs come from China. And he basically uh, tracked this stat through time. And it turns out that it was really just a bad game of telephone tag, that some witness um, without uh, support said that 90% of all of our pharmaceutical inputs come from China and India. And somehow that made it through several different uh, reports, and then all of a sudden, you're hearing that 90% of all of our generic drugs come from China. So, so that's just simply not true. Um, and again, um, the reality is that yes, China is a major producer of generic drugs and of what we call API, which are its pharmaceutical inputs. So, the stuff you need to make drugs. Uh, India is too, um, but uh, the the in overall the pharmaceutical sector globally is very diverse. So again, going back to the International Trade Commission, they did a report um, last summer that actually looked at how much um, and where uh, we are importing our our pharmaceuticals, and in particular drugs, generic and uh, proprietary that we need to fight COVID-19. And what they found was, I think, really important. It showed that overall, very diverse import supply. China, India, a lot from Europe and like Switzerland and elsewhere, Canada as well. And overall, there were only a handful of drugs. And I I mean, like six out of over a hundred where China was the overwhelming supplier. So China import supplier um, around, I think, you know, 80% or so. Um, The ITC has since done another report looking at domestic production. Because uh, that's the thing that's left out. When you hear these scary stats about China supplying, let's say, uh, another one you hear is 90% of the acetaminophen we import comes from China. Well, unmentioned there is uh, what the United States produces. So the ITC tried to get a handle on domestic production um, because imports only are one side of the story, right? And so they found that, again, overall, um, we have a huge 
domestic pharmaceutical sector and domestic pharmaceutical manufacturing. Um, They found, again, that uh, there were very few drugs, specific drugs, where there was any sort of concern about having a sole foreign source for that drug. Um, In general, they found that the U.S. pharmaceutical sector and the global supply chain was very uh, diverse and resilient. That was their word, which was great. Um, and not only that, um, they they also looked at what, again, the pharmaceutical sector did in response to COVID-19, and not just COVID-19, but also what the pharmaceutical sector was doing um, uh, in its own right privately with respect to China and U.S. trade conflict and the rest. And what they saw is that, again, the, uh, the sector is adapting. Um, adapting to, uh, again, geopolitical risks. So there is uh, an effort by global pharmaceutical manufacturers to diversify their their supplies for it, whether it's pharmaceutical inputs or generic drugs. So that's already, already happening. It was actually underway even before COVID hit. And there are efforts for private investors um, in, in the U.S. market. Um, you know, one example not listed in the in the commission's report, but that's out there right now is a Mark Cuban billionaire uh, uh, executive uh, and star TV star um, is actually investing in a, a domestic uh, generic drugs facility, a manufacturing facility in Texas. Um, you know, kind of again proving that that these types of investments are happening and they're happening uh, for for all sorts of. Of reasons, um, and then I think the other thing that's really critical when it comes to drugs, you know, you mentioned China's vaccine, but nobody mentions our vaccines in terms of manufacturing. Um, and and you know, I wrote a great piece. Or sorry, I shouldn't say my piece was great, but there's some great info in a piece that I wrote um, a, a few months ago for the Dispatch on. Um, tracking the production of the Moderna and Pfizer, the development and production of those uh, vaccines. Um, And what you see is not just all sorts of great global cooperation, you know, immigrants and and, uh, global capital flows and, and inputs coming from all over the world, but you also see substantial domestic manufacturing capacity. Pfizer, for example, has uh, is has three large manufacturing facilities uh, producing its vaccine uh, in cooperation with BioNTech, a German company. Um, Moderna has a factory in Massachusetts. It's also using um, other uh, contract manufacturers in the United States, uh, mainly owned by a Swiss multinational called Lanza. So, so this again shows how, in the face of a pandemic. We have existing capacity, but of course, additional investment flows in um, to to boost that capacity in times of emergency. Um, is there a role for government in that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's. You're not going to find a lot of people who say that government can't help by, for example, funding basic research. The mRNA vaccines. Uh, the research was part of a National Institute of Health project from from years ago, um, and government can. Um, also encourage additional production through, for example, per advanced purchase contracts like what we got in Operation Warp Speed. Um, but that's far different from saying we need uh, generic drug manufacturing X in uh, state Y, and we need it because of these reasons. And when you start doing that, you end up 
I think, with problems. For example, the Trump administration's plan to turn Kodak, the the camera company, into a pharmaceutical company, which uh, didn't make a lot of sense on paper and has since fallen into all sorts of problems um, and was revealed to be as much a political decision as an economic or national security one. And, And again, I think that markets tend to be a lot better at ferreting that stuff out. Why don't we conclude here? The narrative that you've worked to debunk in the paper about deindustrialization, um, we hear it quite oft repeated, which is why it's this prominent myth that you decided to uh, turn your attention to. Why do you think there's so much salience to this narrative that, you know, read your paper, we'll see, is doesn't hold as much water as the proponents think that it does? Um, why does it seem to be so prevalent when the kind of dynamic nature of the American economy and trade and manufacturing and all of that is so incredibly undersold? Um, and it takes a, a, a paper from a Scott Lincecum at Cato to <laughs> reveal that well, this is the actual state of things. Yeah. Well, it's a few things. I mean, I think part of it is human nature. Um, individuals uh, generally don't like change. At least they don't like it when it happens to them. Um, and there's no doubt that, as I said, whether it's due to globalization or productivity or interstate competition or whatever, there have been substantial Uh, changes and disruptions in the manufacturing sector, particularly in politically important places like the industrial Midwest. Um, So, And there's no denying that those changes have have happened, and that's hard for people. Um, You know, just saying that deindustrialization didn't happen shouldn't gloss over the fact that, look, people have lost jobs. That is hard. Adjusting is hard. and so, and that also, of course, conjures up all sorts of emotional um, uh, issues that that resonate with voters and and the rest. Um, the the other thing, though, is that it's a classic, you know, kind of uh, Bastiat issue of the seen versus the unseen. Um, people see with their eyes the closure of a factory. They see an old mill that has closed down, um, and of course, uh, media and politicians love to comment on those things, especially national media, it's a big narrative. Less seen or unseen are the new manufacturing facilities uh, opening up elsewhere. Um, You know, if you drive, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you were to drive from here to, say, Montgomery, Alabama, down Interstate I-85, you would see um, several massive multinational automobile manufacturing plants and a lot of other manufacturing plants along the way. Um, and that those are occurring in places that uh, didn't traditionally have automotive manufacturing. Well, that, <clears throat> of course, has a effect for a place like in Michigan, for example. Um, and, and so we see the disruption. We don't see the other side of that. And of course, it's not just in manufacturing. Um, we don't see uh, new jobs um, whether it's in you know blue collar services or warehouse jobs, those types of things that that emerge, and so that that becomes a very easy thing for politicians to cite and to of course uh, try to gain votes from by promising to to make things better or to change them. And I think that gets to the other issue is that um, I think American politicians have for thirty plus years. Um, decided that instead of confronting these inevitable 
seismic changes in the U.S. and global economies have just simply decided to promise Americans that change, that they can get things back to the way they were. Um, nostalgianomics, I like to call it. And that resonates. Um, and it does, let's face it, it's politically effective. President Trump did it. President Biden did it. Um, and and a presidential candidates before them, and I'm sure after them, will do it too. But that also, I think, has a a significant cost um, in terms of setting expectations for people. You know, there's a lot of good evidence that shows that Americans often get their views on economic policies and particularly trade policies from uh, politicians, from kind of they, they take their signals from, from the political elite, whatever you want to call it. Well, when a politician promises you that all of the problems, that the factory closures, that the rest are, are due to trade and globalization, they're not your fault, and that he or she can fix them and bring back those industries and those jobs. Well, a lot of people tend to believe that. Well, and they by believing it, though, it really makes uh, moving on even harder going forward, uh, particularly as the populace gets older, you know, we're an aging population. And that's really, really hard. And it's unfortunate because, like you said, I think there's really a, an optimistic story here that the United States economy continues to be pretty dynamic, um, continues to have a lot of manufacturing capacity, to, continues to produce jobs and, and a lot of good jobs, not just, you know, mick jobs. Um, and it's important for policy not to thwart that necessary adjustment. And it's important that policymakers, instead of promising uh, the steel job of 1980, uh, promise either a job in modern manufacturing or in another industry, um, and don't try to predetermine what that is. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, there's not a there's not a lot of that in our in our current political moment. Scott Lincecum is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, where he writes on international and domestic economic issues. He also writes the newsletter Capitalism for the Dispatch, and his new paper is Manufactured Crisis, Deindustrialization, Free Markets, and National Security. Scott, thanks so much for joining us on Act in Line. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Combs.